Welcome to Redefining Reality, where we live at the intersection of wellness, business, and the birth of a global tribe. So relax your body-mind, open your heart, and recognize that we are the ones we've been waiting for. friends and welcome back to another episode. Today is going to be a fantastic episode and it is me speaking with my friend Dr. Sachin Patel. Dr. Sachin Patel is a chiropractor, a functional medicine practitioner, a father, an entrepreneur, a all-around badass who is living a healthy life, inspiring others to, others to do the same and building a great brand and a great community around that. So I'm excited for you guys to to get into his world, to hear about what he's doing. We talk about uh, a bunch of things in this episode. I'm only going to highlight a couple. One is his 30 and 30 website, where you can get 30 ways in 30 days to essentially upgrade your health and lifestyle. We talk about biomats, which are amazing, and which I'll have links to in the show notes. We talk about how dreams are a sign of the brain healing. This is something I'd never heard before, and I haven't looked into it much. If, if you're out there and you've come across research, or you've come across information, or you have anecdotal experience that you want to share in that regard, please, by all means, fire it up in the comments. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, we talk about the power of essential oils and all sorts of interesting stuff. So if you are into health, if you are into functional medicine, if you are into learning about stress and how to overcome stress and manage stress in a more healthy, holistic way, then I think you're going to get some serious value out of this conversation. And without further ado, let's get into it. Be well, stay beautiful. And thanks for listening. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Redefining Reality. I'm Brian Hardy, and today we have an amazing guest, friend of mine, someone I consider a mentor, a teacher, father, businessman, all-around awesome human being, and that's Mr. Dr. Sachin Patel. Sachin is a doctor of chiropractic medicine. He's trained in functional medicine. He is a coach. Um, like I said, a father, he's raising a little superhero, awesome uh, child who I can't wait to see how his life unfolds with all the seeds and things that are being planted in him. But um, yeah, he is uh, he is here to make the world a better place and empower people to uh, become their best, healthiest selves. So Sachin, welcome. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, man, it's a pleasure. It's truly a pleasure. Um, For a second, I wasn't sure who you were talking about. <laughs> it's weird when somebody reads your, you know, accolades or accomplishments, and and uh, and I appreciate you considering me a mentor, and you know, that's that's a really awesome feeling because it it gives me the um, the privilege to role model, you know, people who are a little bit younger like yourself, and and uh, influence, you know, a, a better society. So I appreciate that. Yeah, man. 
Yeah, well, it's well received. So let's give the the listener um, a bit of a background um, and myself. I mean, we've we've talked and chatted, but I don't know all the details. So how is it that you ended up where you're at? Um, just, yeah, walk us through or maybe, maybe some catalyzing events, some turning points. How did you get here? Sure. So, well, long story short, you know, I... I graduated from McMaster University. I had a degree in kinesiology and I decided at that point I was deciding whether I wanted to go into dental school or medicine or chiropractic. And really, you really, you really don't know what you're getting yourself into until you're actually five years in it. Right? And that's the reality of it. I think most doctors, um, dentists, uh, chiropractors, you really don't understand what the profession is about, what it represents. Uh, and even there's a there's a big disconnect between philosophies of certain uh, practices and how they're actually applied in society. So chiropractic, for example, is a great example because the philosophy of chiropractic doesn't really shine through in the practices that you're going to see. So for me, it was it was really interesting. I had the academic uh, prowess to basically go down any route. I was really good with my hands, so I thought you know maybe being a dentist would be good or a chiropractor would be good. But then I started getting information from all these different schools. And, and as I was doing that, what ended up happening was I started uh, look, getting all these catalogs from dental schools. I'm like, man, I can't look in people's mouths all day, right? I can't see myself doing that no matter how good I am with my hands. And, uh, and then I started looking at medical schools and the philosophy of medicine didn't really align with me because it didn't celebrate the body. What, it, what medicine basically does is tries to find everything that's wrong with the body. And, uh, and so that didn't align with me. And then chiropractic really uh, screamed out at me because it was very hands-on. And I liked that because I was good with my hands. And it embraced the, this philosophy that the body is amazing and it can heal itself and it can repair itself. And we don't need drugs and surgeries all the time to do that. So just so I'm clear, I, you know, modern medicine is amazing. It does amazing things. Uh, but there's a time and place for everything. There's a time and place for natural interventions. There's a time and place for allopathic interventions. So uh, what I decided to do was go into chiropractic school because I loved athletics and sports, and I saw how chiropractic could make a difference in athletes. And I also realized that uh, it really complemented my undergraduate degree very well because kinesiology is a study of human movement, and chiropractic is the optimization of human movement and human physiology and biology and environments. So it really aligned with what I was um, you know, thinking at the time. And Went to chiropractic school, graduated in the top 5% of my class, which doesn't really mean anything because it's all about your passion at the end of the day. That's one of the things I tell my business owners and coaches that I mentor is that it's all about passion. It's not about your grades. Nobody's ever asked me in 10 years to look at my transcripts. So we wear transcripts in our chest, right? That's that's what I always say. So the mm. so I, I basically went to chiropractic school and I started training in a technique called active release technique, which is a soft tissue therapy and graduated uh, at the same time, I also finished completely, was trained in active release, and I went to uh, Cincinnati to practice as my for my externship, and then got hired right out of school in a sports practice, very successful sports practice, working with elite athletes, Olympic athletes, professional athletes, helping them run, throw, kick harder, all that kind of stuff. And what I realized uh, after doing that for a period of time is that it really wears your body out. And my mom would notice that too. She's like, man, you're adjusting these huge athletes and players and stuff like that's got to wear you out and you know eventually it does wear you out but in 2006 which was about two and a half years after I graduated I went on the news and they did a story about my practice the practice I was working for at the time and you know it's it's funny how things work out because my boss at the time was on the news about a year earlier and she froze on live television so 
she had this uh, horrible experience with TV. And so she passed it on to me and she said, you know, why don't you do this? And I said, okay, I'll do it. And you're young, you're excited. And the story was about elbow pain. We had people coming in with chronic elbow pain, tennis elbow, that kind of stuff. And we were helping them through non-surgical interventions. And we had people who had failed surgery, failed physiotherapy, come to us and gotten better using active release. So that was the gist of this, the news report. And it aired one day, finally. They, it's funny how the things work. They air, they recorded in like August and they didn't air it until November. So, you know, they aired it. And then that day we had about 50 people call. The next day we had about another 30 people call. So we had all these people calling in to make appointments to come see us. So we're getting excited because, you know, I've got a, a, a growing practice and you love help. When you love helping people, you get excited when you people call you. And, and uh, we thought, wow, this is, this is awesome. But then as people started coming in in the following weeks, I realized through their histories that none of them actually had elbow pain. And most of them had chronic health conditions like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, autoimmune conditions. So there's all these patients coming in, a flood of patients coming in, and none of them had elbow pain. There was actually one lady who had elbow pain, but her main problem was rheumatoid arthritis. And that was, that's what was causing her elbow pain. So all these people who desperately needed help were coming in to see me, but I couldn't really help them, you know, because you, you can't really adjust these problems away. You can't stretch these problems away. You can't massage these problems away. So musculoskeletal interventions were probably not the best thing. And some of these people were in so much pain, you couldn't even mobilize them. You couldn't even touch them because they're in so much pain. So after looking through the histories and looking through all the doctors and specialists they'd been through, there was really no one to, else left to send them to. And so you can't, what do you do? You can't help this person, but then you don't know where to send them. It's a very disheartening feeling. And uh, as a parent, I now understand what it feels like when you can't help your child if they're in pain or if they're in discomfort. And, you know, I viewed my, my patients like my family members. And when you can't help somebody after going through all this school, having all this knowledge, helping people at the Olympics, helping them people win gold medals, and you can't help somebody who's in pain, you know, you start questioning your existence. You start questioning whether this is what you should be doing and need to be doing because there's all these people suffering and nobody's able to help them. So... I started realizing that, you know, there was an opportunity here to serve in a higher capacity. And instead of people just running half a second faster in a 400 meter race, which at the end of the day, who really cares about, if you can't help the people that need it, then, you know, what are you really doing? And, and so I started learning about functional medicine and partly selfishly for myself, because, uh, you know, I had some of my own health issues. I was having digestive problems. I had joint aches and pains. I had, you know, fatigue. I'd used to take an hour nap every day in the car. So I, used, I know what it feels like not to feel well, but I attributed it to my, you know, aggressive um, lifestyle in the sense that I was, you know, working with people all day, lifting, twisting, bending people all day. So, you know, you expect to be a little bit tired. So I kind of blamed it all on that when in reality it was other things. So I started learning about functional medicine. I said, man, you know, I, I can't quit my job because I, I won't have a job anymore. So I'm going to start incorporating this into my practice and learning it for myself. And if nothing else, it'll help me, it'll help my future family, and it can help people that I love and care about. But if I never use it in clinical practice, it's still worthwhile for me to learn this. So I started pursuing functional medicine for a few reasons. One, because I couldn't help patients that were coming in my door, and that, that new story was really a catalyst for me. The other reason was for myself, because I wasn't feeling my best. And the third reason was because there was a huge opportunity 
in the sense that you provide a solution for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are suffering, which our current medical system really doesn't have. So that's how I got into functional medicine. And once I learned it, it was unethical for me to keep it a secret anymore. And, and so what I started realizing is that the reason these people weren't being helped is because the, they saw the doctor as the solution or the medicine as a solution or the vitamin or a supplement as a solution, when in reality, they were the solution because they were causing the problem to begin with. So we've got this amazing body and uh, nobody's really, really taught us how to take care of it, right? And we never, really, we don't even really teach doctors how to take care of it. We teach them how to fix it when it's broken, right? And that's what drives kind of our medical system is people not knowing how to take care of themselves and then going to a so-called expert to have them fix themselves. So we view the problem as being us and the solution as being external. And that's the economy of, of healthcare, right? And it's pretty sad to me. So what we started realizing is that if we were going to fix people, we had to be honest with them and let them know that you're going to fix this problem because you created it. So we shift the responsibility back on the patient. And then our responsibility as clinicians is basically to be in the passenger seat, coaching you, mentoring you and guiding you. But you've got to do the work, right? You've got to put gas in the car and you've got to make sure the car is working properly and you're following the instructions that we're giving you or you're not going to get where you want to go. We can't drive that car for you. So so that was a huge paradigm shift for us. And what we saw was an amazing uh, turnaround in our patients' health because we started empowering them with better eating habits, with better thought habits, with you know better exercise and, and movement uh, habits and responsibilities. So we started making the patient more responsible for their care and we started seeing some remarkable results. And couple that with functional lab testing, now you've got this amazing recipe to heal and restore people's health. And then another big mind shift that takes place that really helps in the healing process I found is getting people to realize that their body does nothing but serve them, right? They're, if, they're, if your body wanted to destroy you, mm. if your body wanted to destroy you, A, you wouldn't have symptoms because why would your body warn you that something is wrong, right? A symptom is a warning sign and it's your body's way of intelligently communicating with you that something needs to be taken care of. And people can have symptoms for years, so they can have this warning sign for many, many years. And the second thing is, is that if your body wants to kill you, it takes four minutes, right? All you have to do is stop breathing, which is the coordinated effort of trillions upon trillions of cells, right? Your heart is a coordinated effort of trillions of cells. And so the body does nothing except keep you alive. There's no programming for death. There's only a programming for life. And so that mind shift that takes place is very huge because now people start to realize, hey, my body built itself from two cells, right? And it's continuously replacing itself, which is an incredible process if you think about it. And then, the, it, and then that beg, kind of begs the question, uh, why do people stay sick? Because people will ask, you know, if my cells are replacing themselves, why do they stay sick? And the answer to that is because you haven't changed the programming, right? So if I buy my son, who's five, if I buy him a brand new computer, even if I buy him the most expensive computer, but he doesn't know how to use it, he's not going to get the right outcome, Right. And if, if I then keep replacing the computer as the potential solution, it's not going to change the outcome. So programming and what we think and our environments and self-signaling is really the, the basis of health or disease. And, and that's what we need to change with our clients. So there's been a, quite a few uh, things that have happened to me that have moved me in this direction and mind shifts and awakenings that have moved me in this direction. And I, and I think that if I have to be totally transparent without being arrogant, I think we practice uh, functional medicine in a different way than most other clinicians do because what we add to the piece is the patient, not just the lab testing and the supplements, which is where that's a very narrow bandwidth of healing, in my opinion. 
What we add in is the element of changing the way the patient thinks, changing their environment, uh, helping them understand a little bit more about how their body works, and and then teaching them how to take care of it. Because our our philosophy of medicine and our paradigm of healthcare is to really help our patients by liberating them from needing us instead of constantly needing us. And if you think about how our current education is uh, set up, it's it's kind of it's kind of sad to me uh, that our kids really don't learn how to take care of their health. Okay, that's a very small part of uh, their education, and it's usually uh, something that's very influenced by industry. So they get a watered down, washed down version of what that's like, and they don't know how to take care of finances. Okay, and in my opinion, these things are done intentionally so people stay poor and they stay they stay broke and they stay broken, right? And then they have to go to outside sources to find solutions for problems that they are causing. So. This is why our healthcare industry and our financial industry are the two most lucrative and profitable industries because nobody knows how to take care of themselves, right? And when you go to the doctor, the doctor doesn't know how to take care of you either, right? Because the doctor only studies how to fix something that's broken. They don't study how to amplify and how to nurture something that's working well. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there. Um, yeah. I see... Well, I wanted to just touch on one thing. I had this image as you were talking about, you know, if you buy your son a computer, but this, the programming is all off and you just keep replacing the computer thinking that's the issue. It makes me think of surgery and the ridiculous amounts of surgery, largely unnecessary, that are being done and sold and prescribed. And, um, yeah, it's like, oh, you know, you've got an issue. Okay, we'll just cut it out cut it out and replace it with something artificial and that's the solution that they have to offer without ever looking at the root of the issue so it's interesting just yeah there's the parallels that you see there um yeah well, you know, and, one thing we tell our patients is that you know if you're um, whether you have surgery or whether you take medications you know sometimes people get to that point of no return which is which is totally understandable you can't blame them because nobody's taught them how not to end up in that situation and they've been marketed to via billions and billions of dollars every year uh, that this is you know this is the way it is this is the conditioning that people get and and medicine's interesting because it, it does it does a couple of things that I find very uh, uh, that's the right word very deceitful and I don't know if they do it intentionally, but this is just my observation. And that is they say people are sicker because they're living longer, which is a paradox in and of itself, right? So people we have more cancer, we have more heart disease because people are living longer. Okay, so that what they're doing is they're patting themselves on the back, you know, and this is happening subliminally. They're patting themselves on the back saying, oh, people are living longer because of our interventions, right? And then the other thing they're saying is early detection, right? So again, now they're patting themselves on the back that, hey, we're finding things much earlier and because of our amazing technology but you're really not fixing anyone right you're just you're just creating a longer lineup and you're starting people down this destructive self-destructive path in my opinion at a much younger age and so our, our system is set up for people to think this way and the most important thing that we have the most valuable thing we have is our mind and that's why marketers spend billions of dollars every year on marketing to try to get in here to change the programming that's taking place. So we're conditioned to think that we're going to get sick. We're conditioned to think that, that after a certain age, our health should start to deteriorate. And it's sad because what you're seeing now, because of environmental uh, aspects of health, uh, you know, the environment plays such a huge role in our health. And now you're seeing grandmothers, mothers, their daughters, all developing the same diseases at the same time, right? So you have hormonal imbalances in every generation 
So now we can't keep saying it's the age, right? We can't say that people are living longer. What, 13 is longer, right? <laughs> Five, six months old, people are six months old and they're sick, right? So there's something going on that we haven't really accounted for, at least we've accounted for, I think. Um, and I think you've accounted for, and probably a lot of people listening to this have accounted for, and that's why we're looking to make some changes. But our current system is really not designed to empower the patient. And, and to me, that's that's quite sad. And that's why people stay sick, because they don't know how to take care of themselves. Yeah. And it's really interesting, I find, because, you know, this whole, the, the system that's got all this momentum behind it was created in a time where the access to information didn't exist like it does today, mm -hmm. right? Podcast didn't exist. The internet didn't exist. So we didn't have the ability to see the proof, you know, the proof that, okay, these treatments are ineffective. They're not safe. They're for profit. Right, all these, all those things are out there and known, and we know about this. But the momentum and the willful ignorance allows it to continue. Right. So I see um, a lot of what you know, people like yourself do. People like what I aspire to do is to be, you know, a disruptor mm -hmm. and to sort of redirect the flow of resources and wealth and attention from these, you know, whether you want to call them evil, whatever, destructive forces, destructive entities into the life-giving, the life-enriching side of things. Yeah, you know, and, uh, that's an excellent point. Yeah, and so just looking back on the the power of the mind, this is something that's been very, very, very top of my mind as of recent. Um, and you're seeing, I'm seeing a shift in in a lot of the health space um, to an extent where, okay, we've got the diet nailed down pretty well. We've got the lifestyle factor, some of the sleep and the exercise nailed down pretty well. But some people will have those and they're still not well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been there myself. You're still not well. And so it's, you got to go deeper. You know, what's the, what's the thought? What's the emotion? What's the, the deeper layers that are out of alignment with health. Mm -hmm. And so, Starting there and focusing there um, is essential in that in that respect. That's why I love hearing that you're 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 applying everything, right? It's that integrated model, it's that holistic perspective, which is the way I see the future going, right? It's we're going to have integrated holistic wellness hubs in our communities that, uh, yeah, that are just going to empower us to to be healthy and well. So. Yeah, I mean, one way to an analogy that I could uh, probably interject there that might help some of the listeners is that think of your car, right? And if I if I replace all the broken parts with brand new parts, and I start putting rocket fuel or you know, the best fuel that I can get in the engine, you know that represents the food, for example. But if the driver is still not following the rules of the road, right? or the environment, let's say it's a really uh, wintry, wet, slippery day, then the environment also plays a critical role. And so if, you're, if you've got a brand new car with, with you know, amazing gasoline in it, that doesn't, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get to where you want to go safely, right? You've still got to follow the rules of the road, the rules of engagement, we call that. And a lot of people don't know them, so they're, they don't know what they're following. So they follow what they think are the rules, which are constantly changing, by the way, right? You know, fat's good, fat's bad, carbs are good, carbs are bad, protein's good, protein's bad. You know, we, we keep hearing, you know, misinformation, so people get confused. And then 
one of the things about our body that's the gift and the curse is the resilience that our body has, right? We could abuse it for many, many years and not know we're doing something wrong. And, and then we, of course, we shift the blame back to the body. But, you know, that's something that uh, if you're driving in the wrong direction, you might not know until half an hour later, right? If you're eating in the wrong direction or moving in the wrong direction or thinking in the wrong direction, you might not know with your health for 20 or 30 years later. Right, because many conditions and diseases develop in a dormant, uh, they have a prolonged dormant period. So heart disease, for example, doesn't start when you're 60. It, it's been going on for 20 or 30 years before that. Diabetes doesn't start when you're 60, when you get the diagnosis and you meet the end stage criteria. It's been going on for many years. And now we know Alzheimer's starts in the 20s, right? So, you know, these diseases take many years of this dysfunctional living takes many years to create the disease which we then assume happens with age, but it happens by driving and, and, and thinking and moving and all these things in the wrong direction. So the, a car is a really good analogy because you could be a really bad driver and have the newest car and the best gasoline, but that does, that, that's not going to guarantee anything. Exactly, exactly. And um, one other thing that I wanted to, to pull back on that you had mentioned earlier and funny i didn't know actually that you uh went to mcmaster mm -hmm. so i spent i spent three years at mcmaster oh wow okay before yeah back in a, in a previous life when <laughs> i was uh studying to become an automotive engineer wow okay and um great school though beautiful campus mm -hmm. but um yeah just funny little connection there and going back to yeah so this whole idea that I want to touch on the the living longer, you know, more disease living longer. I'm not sure where you stand on this, but from what, what I understand, you know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors actually lived quite long mm -hmm. and quite well, except for, you know, injuries, traumas, you know, some infections, things like this. And so the way I see it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a way to even crank up even higher the fear dial. Um, with pe keeping people in that, uh, you know, needy, dependent, um, victim uh, perspective or mindset, mm -hmm. which financial and health industries do in order to perpetuate their agendas. And so by, yeah, so by broadcasting the myth of, of uh, living longer, more disease because we're living longer, and that early detection is actually going to help um, when, I mean, things like breast cancer comes to mind, right? They're using mammograms. So they're squishing this sensitive tissue and zapping it with x-rays to detect something that could in the future be a problem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like to me, that just seems so backwards, right? And it's, okay, you're going right. to tell this young woman she's got, you know, lumps or, or non-cancerous things growing. But uh, that's sort of where it stops. Like we'll we'll observe we'll observe the progression, and if it gets worse, then we'll do something. But it's like okay, just go. So they're planting these seeds constantly, mm -hmm. and more and more these days because they can broadcast and they have all the backing. So it's really it's just very very interesting. Um, and so I love the work that people like you are doing and that people on the solution side are doing to broadcast the truth. Right? It's like almost like a propaganda war at this point, or I guess it's always been that. Mm -hmm. And these tools are leveling the playing field so that the truth, you know, the true propaganda, I don't know if that's an oxymoron or a paradox, can get out there, right, can reach people and can 
can land in people. Mm-hmm. Like they can really feel it. They can resonate with it in their body instead of just some mental construct to know that, okay, there's another way, you know, right. and, and I'm not feeling well. I'm Maybe I'll explore this. Maybe I'll explore something. Try something new, you know, which can be hard in itself, given that our neural pathways get so well worn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious what, uh, so in some of the, Say I was going to be a enrolling in your clinic. What might be the um, the course of events? Like I'm assuming there's a system, right? Right. Um, what's what's sort of the general course that you take people on to to allow these changes to start taking place? Sure. So we've actually updated that process fairly recently because um, of a few reasons. One, our our practice has grown exponentially over the last few years, and you know we like to pre-qualify people to make sure that we're not wasting their time and and they're not wasting um, our time. And, and the reason I say that is because there's thousands, if not millions of people that need our help. So we want to make sure that we're interacting with people who are really committed. So the first thing that we have our clients do now is go through a 30-day program. And it's a 30-day program that I created. It's called 30 Ways in 30 Days. You can log in at 30and30.org. It's absolutely free. And so it's basically a way for us to connect with people, give them tips and advice and, and uh, ideas and ways of thinking to start doing and implementing into their life because we're going to tell them to do these things anyways. And if they're not committed to doing these things, then we're going to be wasting our time and their time. So that's the first thing that we do is we have people go through this uh, 30-day program, which we've created for them. And then if if they make those changes and they start feeling better, then awesome. That's really what we want. We've created this program to keep people out of our office, right? Uh, and then those people who don't feel better, who, who feel there's something deeper going on, then they can actually come in and see us. So we start with an initial consultation. It's about an hour long. It's a 46-page form that they fill out. So it's a quite thorough uh, personal health history, social history, lifestyle history, uh, dental history, birth history, all that stuff goes into it. And we look at that information, and then we come up with what we feel is an appropriate testing protocol. We usually look at the digestion. We Not usually, but every single patient, we look at their digestive function. We look for stealth infections, pathogens, make sure they're digesting their food properly, making making the enzymes that they need, make sure they have good bacteria versus bad bacteria. We also look at a, a test called an organic acid test, which looks at mitochondrial function, phase one, phase two, liver detoxification, neurotransmitter metabolism, B vitamin metabolism, uh, oxidative stress, and dysbiosis. So there's about nine pillars that we look at in that test. And then we often find that uh, people have a lot of stress and by the time they get to us, I mean, if, even if you didn't have a chronic disease this day and age, you're under stress, right? And that stress could be financial stress, emotional stress, commuting stress, uh, pollution, you know, EMF, whatever the case might be. We, ha- we have about 100 times more stress on our systems than we did uh, just two generations ago. And so we evaluate the hormonal systems in a patient's body. So we'll look at their thyroid health, adrenal health, and then their sex hormone health because the hormones are basically the chemical messengers in our body. And so they communicate uh, from the brain uh, and from the, from the glands to the actual cells themselves, and they tell the cells what to do. So we have to make sure that A, a person's digesting their food and eating the right foods and, and uh, nurturing their body properly. B, we have to make sure that nothing is robbing them of their nutrition. So yeast infections, parasites, things like that will actually rob us of, of, of good nutrition because they eat first. So anytime, anytime you eat something, your bacteria eat first. And that's something that we always have to explain to clients. And, and it's a huge revelation for a lot of people because they don't think of it that way. And essentially, we get the bacteria, bacteria's leftover. 
But if you've got yeast, if you've got parasites, if you've got you know dysbiosis, then you're going to have a uh, an alteration in the amount of calories and type of nutrients that are absorbed into your body. So then once the nutrients are absorbed, we have to make sure the liver and the immune system are working properly because they're responsible for making sure that toxins don't go through our system. And the immune system is responsible for making sure that the things that enter into our body are not foreign objects, proteins, mold, toxins, things like that. So we have to make sure that those systems are working properly. And then the cells, the cells themselves have to be working and carrying out biological processes because that's where energy is actually uh, produced. Uh, our food actually turns into energy in the cells. And the hormones are going to be like the gas pedals in your car and the brake. It's going to tell the cell what to do, when to go, when to stop. And so we have to make sure that system is working properly. We also work on, uh, we can't test certain things, but we also work on lifestyle. We work on mindset. Uh, we'll teach people how to use uh, heart rate variability monitors like uh, HeartMath so they can be more aligned and in tune with their physiology and, and know if they're in a sympathetic or parasympathetic state, which, um, you know, we can talk about a little bit later, but the state of their physiology determines what signaling is going to the cell, which determines ultimately their healing. So you could have somebody who's eating perfect, who's exercising, who's doing all the right things, but if they're sending the wrong message to their cells, they're going to fail every single time. And this is the part of uh, a person's recovery that's often overlooked is their ability to send the cell the right message. And, and so we kind of look at it from a multidimensional perspective. And, you know, we can't help everybody. I, I can't say that we have a 100% success rate. And I, I think anyone who tells you that is probably lying to you because our success depends on our patients and not everyone's compliant, right? But I am 100% certain that somebody who does uh, this, pro goes through this process is going to move in the right direction, right? Like eating healthier, thinking better, moving better, sleeping earlier, uh, identifying blind spots in your environment, there's no way you could get worse, right? Not changing these things guarantees that somebody's going to get worse. And sometimes people might take somebody a little bit longer to recover, and that's what the testing helps us do, is it helps us identify anything that's interfering with that recovery process, and then also helps us identify a, a more accurate recovery time. And it's like, it's like a GPS, right? A GPS needs two things. It needs an accurate starting point, and it needs an accurate end point. And it figure out, figures out the roadmap in between and the most efficient and, and uh, effective way to get there. But if you, have a, if you don't have a good, accurate idea of where you're starting and a, an accurate idea of where you want to end up, then you're in trouble because nobody can, even, you can't even start the process, right? Like try going to your mm. GPS and saying, I kind of want to start here and I kind of want to go there and see how, that, how far that gets you, right? So we also help patients map out, you know, what, what they really want out of this process and and, uh, and make sure that they're a good fit because it, you know, most people are used to the idea that the doctor is going to fix them, right? And our concept is a little bit different. We're, we're going to turn them into the doctor because we truly believe that, you know, you're the best pharmacy, you're the best surgeon, you're the best doctor, you're the best everything of yourself because nothing can fix your body better than it can fix itself. But we just have to teach you, you know, the rules of engagement so that you can take better care of yourself. So that's, in a nutshell, that's how it's, the process starts is, you know, making sure the patient is qualified, uh, making sure they're ready to make the changes that are necessary, making sure that they're aware of the testing that we're going to do and getting that done. And then we also do a lifestyle and nutrition consultation with them. That's consultation number two. Uh, and that way we can help them identify blind spots. And there's a lot of stuff that people who are watching this are probably very familiar with, right? Like you might even notice my glasses have a reflective coating on them. So they're looking a little purplish, bluish because they reflect blue light. Um, you might notice that we might talk about salt lamps, we might talk about essential oils, we might talk about, 
uh, you know, mold in the, in the home. We might talk about, you know, other areas that we probably take for granted at this point in, in our stage of personal development. But the average person is completely clueless to these things, right? Even talking to them about turning the TV off or their computers off at the end of the day, that's, you know, that, that can be a huge stretch for some people. So we go through the, the research and the science and, and all the evidence behind that if, if people want that and we give them some guidelines to start following. The third appointment is usually when they get the results back. So now we have clinical information about them, blind spots, things that they didn't know, like nutrient deficiencies, pathogenic infections, stealth infections, hormonal imbalances that we need to work on correcting. So now we have all that information and then we can start nutritional interventions and we can further reinforce the lifestyle modifications that led to this physiology and work on addressing those with a little bit more detail if necessary. And then, uh, you know, we have appointments four and five, which are essentially to make sure that they're moving in the right direction, continue to mentor them and guide them. And the goal is within six to eight months to get them to a point where they kind of know how to take care of themselves, right? They might not be completely healed and completely restored. Of course, uh, that can take a little bit longer, but our goal is to kind of push them in the right direction. It's kind of like a rocket ship, right? You just have to set it in the right direction. And then as long as there's nothing interfering with it, it's going to eventually get to its destination. Uh, mm. But, uh, you know, of course, we do have interference in our life. It's not quite as easy. It'd be nice if we were in space and there's nothing interfering with this process. But, um, you know, so page, what we also do is we send patients um, educational emails that help continue to coach them and nurture them. And then we have live workshops that we do for our patients on topics like stress and communications and relationships and eating healthy, raising healthy kids, uh, engaging with the outdoors a little bit more. So we, we try to you know nurture these other aspects of their health and wellness in group settings. So it's efficient on our time. It saves them money because they're not having to pay for an hour of our time to get this information across to them. And it also uh, engages them because now they start realizing they're not the only one going through this. You know, I, I think... Uh, when, when people are unwell, they feel like they're unwell in isolation, right? They feel like mm -hmm. silo. And just knowing that other people are going through the same process, you know, makes them feel better that they're not the only person. But also what happens when you have a group of people that are all there to improve themselves and live a better life, there's a certain frequency of energy that you're not going to find at the mall, right? Or at Starbucks or at even your, where you work, you're not going to find that, that resonance and that energy. So it's good for people to be in that type of environment as well. So these are, you know, kind of in a nutshell, there's obviously a few more nuances and details that go into this, but in a nutshell, that's what we do for our clients. So we, we really take them on a journey. It's mentoring them through a journey to find the best version of themselves. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you. I love that. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. And what came to mind, well, a bunch of things, the, yeah, the bringing them together, right? So you're creating that community. Mm-hmm. And as human beings, as social animals, that's something we need so much of um, and that the modern world just doesn't provide. Right. So I love that aspect. And I love the – I want to go back and we'll, we'll do a bit of the, the stress sure. uh, stuff because I noticed for myself, you know, with my journey, a lot of my stuff started, as with most of us, in the gut, right? So compromised digestion, mm -hmm. dysbiosis, candida, all that sort of stuff. Which led to hormonal issues and the whole adrenal fatigue, that whole that whole picture. But it wasn't until I, so I was eating the good food. I was you know cut off the sugar supplements, all this. But I was always stressed, right? I wasn't breathing properly, so I would eat this good food, but I would eat it in a hurried state. I would eat it in a shallow breathing state, um, and then wonder why it took so long to feel better. Mm -hmm. 
And so let's dive into a little bit of, you know, parasympathetic versus sympathetic stress. Sure. Um, the heart math, coherence, deep breathing, that whole picture. Sure. So stress, like I said earlier, is ubiquitous. I mean, if you live in North America, you're way beyond stressed out. And a good example is a lion. Okay, so we'll use the lion in, in this analogy. But first, let me remind you of maybe the last time you went to African lion safari or you went to see a lion in captivity. Most of the time, these lions are doing what? Lying down, right. taking a nap. They're doing nothing, yeah. right? So yeah. that's that's kind of our, we have to take it back to that. That's kind of our natural state of stress, right? That's, uh, or our natural state of physiology. It's just chilling, hanging out with our family, you know, not in this constant life or death type of, uh, you know, physiology. A lion is in a stressful state when, uh, when it needs food or when it's being attacked, which is rare, but when it needs food, right? So that's what our, that's what our stressors are, is when we need food, when we need to get something done. Uh, now we have deadlines for these things, which is work essentially, right? So stress is, is something that is very, very foreign to our bodies. We have an excellent adaptation to short-term, uh, high-intense, high-intensity levels of stress, like a lion chasing us, for example, but that's usually a very short interaction. It's 30 seconds, you're either alive and grateful to be alive, right, which is another important part of healing is gratitude, or you're dead, right? So it's 30 seconds, all's out, um, all out, balls to the wall type of physiology. Now, the gratitude part is very important because most people, when they escape stress on Fridays, right, they're not grateful to be alive, right? They're, uh, so they're not really nurturing that side of their physiology. They're just looking for some other way to destroy their body. So alcohol or drugs or, you know, partying, something like of that nature. So they actually add more stress to the stress. Okay. So they add chemical stress to the physiological stress that they already have versus going into a state of gratitude, which makes us much more parasympathetic. So this is an, kind of an important thing that I think often gets overlooked is gratitude. So imagine a lion chasing you. Now imagine, um, this idea that your body never makes mistakes, which is our one of our core tenets, is that your body doesn't make mistakes. It can't afford to because if it does make a mistake, you're dead, right? So our body never makes mistakes. And once you accept that, then the rest of this makes sense. So imagine a lion chasing you. The first thing that has to happen is that our physiology has to, or our body has to recognize the threat. So we have a vis visual perception, auditory perception, taste perception, gustatory perception. So we have, all, we have our five senses and I would say six senses and they perceive a stress or a threat in our environment. The first thing that has to happen after we perceive the stressor or the or whatever is happening is it has to, that information goes to a part of our brain called the amygdala which stores our fear and our life experiences are essentially stored in our amygdala. So the information gets processed there first before it goes to our conscious brain, okay? The amygdala then determines is this a stress response or not and based on your past experiences and your your core beliefs if you believe a lion is going to kill you and a threat to your health you better believe you're going to create a physiological response of fight or flight but if you're like my son who's five who doesn't have this idea that a lion is going to kill you he might walk towards a lion right because his amygdala has a different set of programming so our programming our subconscious programming is very very important in our stress response it, it actually determines whether we have a stress response or not so what people do is they try to get better at reduce they either they try to get better at either reducing stress which doesn't work because you know how do you reduce the stress of a lion sitting in your office right you're it's a it, you're just trying to play mental games with yourself or what they try to do is they get better at managing the stress okay and those are failing models and you see this all the time because 
you know, how much med- how much deep breathing can you do if a lion's chasing you all the time, right? How much mindfulness can you have if a lion's constantly chasing you? Because the amygdala produces a response before the conscious brain even knows what's happening. So what we first have to do if we're going to really mitigate stress is we have to change what people's belief systems are, okay? Because our belief system determines whether we have a stress response or not. So the amygdala has a two-second head start on the conscious brain. So this is what keeps us alive. If a lion walked into my office right now, I wouldn't want my conscious brain thinking about what to do, right? And, and then creating a physiological stress response. The amygdala takes care of that for me based on my beliefs. And w- instantaneously, I create a sympathetic fight or flight response. Okay? And then I realize shortly afterwards what's going on after I've actually had a head start on this situation. Okay? Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. now let's think about what should happen and what you would want to have happen. Right. So if you believe in a higher power of creation, then let's just think of this intelligently. What would you want ha- to have happen? Well, let's think about the brain. Would I want blood going to my frontal cortex, my neocortex, where intelligent thinking and all that type of stuff takes place? No, because I don't have time to think about this. I have to survive the situation, right? I'm not going to map out a route on how I'm going to escape this lion uh, because that's not going to work. Or I'm not going to try to figure out a way to talk myself out of this because that's not going to work either, right? So we start sending blood from our frontal cortex to our hindbrain, which is our reptilian brain, so that we can make reflexive decisions. That's where all of our reflexes are essentially stored, is in our reptilian and our hindbrain. And so now we start sending blood there, which means that when we're stressed out, we're not going to get blood flow to the peripheral part of the brain because we don't need it there, right? It's non-essential at that point. This is why people can't think straight when they're stressed out. This is why people blank out on a test, even though they know everything. It's not because they don't know everything. It's, or they forgot anything, it's because they're not sending blood to the right part of the brain. And then they go home after the test and like, shit, that's the answer, right? Because they knew it all along. They just weren't accessing that information. So we change the way the the brain um, uh, distributes blood and energy, okay? The next thing that happens, I'll just go from head to toe, our, our pupils will dilate, okay? And this allows more information to come in. Our auditory and our sensory perception increases, right? And that makes sense because if you're hiding around the corner from a lion, you want to be able to hear every blade of grass that's cracking under its feet, right? So our auditory senses come up. But this results in people being highly sensitive to sound and highly sensitive to light and highly sensitive, you know, to smells and things like that because our sensory system is constantly heightened. So even touch and pain and those pain receptors, uh, nociception, those type of things become more sensitized. So people with chronic stress are going to have chronic pain and chronic environmental irritation. So these are people who need sunglasses all the time, people who complain about noises being too loud, people who are on the edge when you you drop a plate and they kind of freak out because their physiology is on the edge. Next, as we go down, our our mouth produces less digestive enzymes because you're not going to be eating off a lion's chasing you, right? So we basically shut off... uh, production of saliva. So these are these people will complain of a dry mouth. So they'll be drinking lots of water, but always feel thirsty because they're not producing their own saliva. But as your mouth dries out, then your teeth start to become problematic as well. So poor oral health will result in people who have chronic stress as well. We also increase our heart rate and our blood pressure because we've when we're in a normal state of physiology in a parasympathetic state, we're sending a lot of blood to the trunk. We're sending a lot of blood to the digestive system and the kidneys and our internal organs, reproductive organs. But when we're stressed out, we don't need blood there anymore because digestion is not going to save us. It's not going to fuel the response because it takes too long to turn our food that's in our stomach into energy, right? That's a several-hour process. We need energy now. So we turn off digestion, plus we have to take blood from the gut and send it to the arms and legs. We can't make more blood to respond. We have to divert it from one area of the body to another. So we turn off these internal organs that are non-essential for survival. 
However, they are essential for health and wellness, right? They're essential for your long-term survival, not your short-term survival. So our blood pressure goes up because we've got to send blood uh, to the arms and legs all the way to our fingertips uh, and our toe tips. And so that requires more pressure, requires more work. Our breathing increases because we're going to need more oxygen. Our cortisol level goes up, we're going to in which increases blood sugar. That's actually the main function of cortisol is to increase blood sugar. So blood sugar goes up. Our immune system shuts down because a white blood cell is not going to save us from a lion. Our bone building, our muscle building shuts down because those are metabolically very expensive processes. And we're not going to be able to build enough muscle in the next 30 seconds to really overcome what we're, what we're undergoing. So these non-essential things shut off. A reproductive function obviously shuts off because having a baby right now is not important. And think of somebody who's chronically stressed out, somebody who's running from a lion every single day of their life. Adding a kid into that situation is not going to lower the stress levels, right? So our body's smart. And what we don't realize from a physiological standpoint is that progesterone, which is made from cholesterol and then pregnenolone, basically is the pro-gestation, pro-pregnancy hormone. But progesterone in the body converts into cortisol and cortisone. So chronic stress and chronic inflammation actually lower a woman's progesterone levels, and it's basically built-in birth control. Okay, So high stress, high inflammation is guaranteed over time, not acute situations, but chronic situations is guaranteed to lower progesterone, which lowers the likelihood of fertility. Um, so this is why we see a lot of infertility cases um, all over. You know, one in, I believe, one in 15 People or oh, I'm sorry, one out of uh, 12 out of every 100 people have fertility issues. So about one in eight people have fertility issues, which is a staggering number. It's actually extinction level numbers uh, from a biological standpoint. So we have reproductive compromise. We also have compromise in kidney function. So people will retain water because, you know, your kidneys take up about 25 to 30 percent of your daily energy metabolically. So if we take somebody uh, who, and the kidneys are part of the detoxification pathway, but if we continue making urine, we're wasting energy, right? You see that we're wasting energy for something that's not going to keep us alive. And, um, and so this is why people will retain a lot of fluids, right? So they're drinking a lot of water because they're thirsty, but then they're retaining a lot of fluids because their kidneys are underactive. And, uh, and also we'll also see people with bladder incontinence because, you know, if you've got a liter of fluid in your, in your bladder and you're under acute stress, you're going to pee your pants because a liter of fluid in your bladder is not going to increase your chance of survival. That's why people pee their pants when they're ex under extreme uh, duress. And usually kids, you'll see this with kids when they're really stressed out. So our body basically goes into a high, it turns into a high performance vehicle, but it turns off anything that's non-essential. So think of a high performance car, right? A high performance car doesn't have, you know, uh, power windows. It doesn't have an air conditioning unit. It doesn't have a back seat, right? Because these things are non-essential to get that car moving from A to B as quickly as possible. So that's what happens in our body. Our non-essential physiological systems for survive, uh, that are non-essential for survival shut off. The things that are absolutely essential for survival amplify, okay? And so this is the state of stress. And it's kind of like a light switch. You can't be either, you can't be one foot in, one foot out in the sympathetic versus parasympathetic. You're either stressed out or you're not, okay? Now, what this does that's interesting is it changes the physiology of every single cell in your body. Every single cell in your body goes from being uh, anabolic, which is in a growth state, into being catabolic, which is a breakdown state, okay? And again, an intelligent response to an unintelligent chronic situation, that's what basically happens in our bodies. Now, the cool thing about, the, um, about this is, A, we can change how we think, which instantly changes our perception, right? 
Um, or we can get better at, you know, learning to say no or identifying the stressors and eliminating them as best as we can. I mean, that's really the first place to start. Uh, but then we can also work on the back end because every it's inevitable that we're going to have stress, right? It's inevitable that we're going to have things that stress us out. And it's just the world we live in. Unless you're retired on a beach and everything's taken care of for you, you're probably going to have more stress than you want or that your body needs or is ideal for it, especially if you live in North America. And so the opposite of this system is called the parasympathetic system. And the parasympathetic system is essentially known as our rest and digest system. And it is the exact opposite. So what it does is it increases blood flow to the frontal cortex, increases saliva production, allows the pupils uh, to constrict instead of dilate. It dampens our pain perception and uh, auditory perception and things like that. It also lowers our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure, gets more blood flowing to the gut, more blood flowing to the kidneys and reproductive organs. So everything we want, every single thing that a person wants when it comes to their health, it lives on the parasympathetic side of our autonomic nervous system. But every single person that comes to see us lives on the sympathetic side, right? So they have sympathetic lifestyles with parasympathetic expectations and that's just not how the body works. And so once we explain that to people, then they start realizing why they're unwell and why taking supplements doesn't really provide us with the answer because you're just supplementing the stress response, right? You're becoming better and more nourished to have a, a, a stress response versus changing what you're doing with those nutrients and creating a more physiological response to healing, which is the parasympathetic response. Now, the cool thing about the parasymp parasympathetic response is regardless of what's stimulating the parasympathetic response, we have a built-in mechanism called the vagus nerve that actually is a cranial nerve number 10 which is the single nerve that innervates that entire parasympathetic response. Vagus means wanderer. So it literally goes from our midbrain, our brainstem, all the way into our trunk and reproductive organs and, and everything that we just talked about. And that lowers heart rate, lowers blood pressure. Uh, it lowers uh, um, our, essentially our stress perception, increases blood flow to the frontal cortex. So everything we want is controlled by the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve uh, is innervated or stimulated in, in a few different ways. You can stimulate it mechanically by humming, okay, or talking, right? So the vibration mm -hmm. from our vocal cords actually mechanically stimulates the vagus nerve. You can take a cold shower, which is something that I do, I would say five out of seven days uh, uh, every morning. And so what you do is you allow the cold water to beat up on your on your neck and on your thyroid. And then you also get it into your lymph nodes, armpits, groin area. So you kind of take a cold shower and that will uh, stimulate the vagus nerve. Cold water on your face stimulates the vagus nerve. Another thing you can do is actually gargling, gargling the alphabet. Okay, so you, the more water you put, the harder it gets. So start off with uh, maybe two to three ounces of water, work your way up and uh, say the alphabet while you're gargling. That's going to stimulate your vagus nerve as well. But the one that we're probably most familiar with is deep breathing because the vagus nerve innervates our diaphragm. And so as we start uh, manually breathing, the breath is actually the bridge between the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, uh, aspects of the autonomic nervous system are bridged by breathing because that's the only response that we can actually control. We have conscious control over our breathing. Everything else, our heart rate, our, our uh, blood pressure, where blood is going to our brain, all of these things are subconsciously controlled. And this is why when people are under extreme duress, you have them start taking deep breaths because now you get a an innervation of the diaphragm, which stimulates the vagus nerve, which then automatically creates a relaxation type of response. Now, if you don't get rid of the stressor, then as soon as you stop doing that, you're going to go back into a sympathetic state, 
right? So this is why changing your perception, changing the actual stressor in your environment is absolutely critical. Otherwise, how much deep breathing can you really do, right? You want, you don't want to, you really, you can force a parasympathetic state, but the idea here is to live a parasympathetic lifestyle, right? And, and that way you're naturally creating a parasympathetic response. So that's your natural state of being instead of your natural state of being, uh, being sympathetic and then artificially having to create a parasympathetic response. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could just share the thing I think that has worked best for me or that I've been able to most integrate, I mean, besides the cold showers, which I'm pretty good at, but I need that. Thanks for the reminder to make sure to get it on the lymph Mm -hmm. because it's so sensitive under the arm, that cold water, but (laughs) it feels good. It feels good. Just got to push through that. Don't forget the groin. um, The groin, the groin I get, the groin, the neck, the back. I love doing the back from the top of the neck all the way down. Oh, that feels great. But, um, yeah, what I found works great for for myself is before, specifically with before a meal, right, is to do some deep breathing and to do some gratitude. Yep. So whether that's a prayer, whether that's, you know, just giving thanks for really the miracle that has appeared before you. You know, you've got ingredients from all over the world. You've got, you know, how many people's work and energy went into bringing that. Um, so I find that you know, regardless if you're religious or not, just sitting down and just bringing that to your awareness and just saying thank you mm-hmm. can very, very quickly shift into that parasympathetic, into that receptive healing sort of state. I, I like to call the parasympathetic the rest, digest, and um, regenerate, right? Because our bodies have the ca- capacity to regenerate, yep. you know, to grow new tissue, don't forget, but only if we don't forget rep- allow them. Don't forget reproduce. Reproduce yeah. too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's all these pieces that our lifestyle and our society at large are, is completely in opposition to, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's reprogramming the whole way you look at life and go through life. And then once that's in place, you know, things are smooth, smooth sailing. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, quite a task to get there. Yeah. And one thing I, I should add is that when you explain this to patients, they have a, a profound shift that takes place because when they come in and they have high blood pressure, when they can't sleep at night, when their blood sugar is high, when, you know, they're losing muscle mass and you explain to them that this is not pathology. This is an actually, this is exactly what your body's supposed to be doing, Right. If you came in and you had a high stress lifestyle and and you were overweight and all these things and your blood pressure was normal or low, then we have a problem because now you can't even respond to the you can't even meet the demands of the of the situation that are required, right? Mm. I expect someone with chronic stress to have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, I expect them not to be able to think clearly. I expect them to have poor digestion. This is exactly what I expect them to have. So I actually congratulate them and tell them, listen, your body's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, right? You're telling it to turn left, it's turning left. But if you don't understand that, right? If you tr- if you turn the wheel left and you're expecting your car to go to the right, then you're always going to be disappointed. So what happens is now they have this awakening and they start to realize, wow, you know, this is my responsibility. It's not my body that's doing something wrong. It's me that's send- sending it the wrong instruction or I'm in the wrong environment or I have the wrong mentality uh, based on the situation I'm in. And and I feel that that's really a, a profound awakening that our patients have and, and something that I wanted to make sure I got across to people too is it's very empowering, right, to know that your body isn't making a mistake. And it's also very empowering to know that you can do something about it by just simply changing the way you think and the way you approach a situation and, and, uh, and 
you know, your doctors will try to convince you your body's doing something wrong, right? Because when we convince somebody that their body's doing something wrong, then we, we stop looking for a solution within us and within our environment and we start blaming our body. So now we have this negative talk and this condescending dialogue that we have with our body and with our parents because it's genetic, right? Uh, instead of actually feeling empowered to actually do something about it. Yeah, yeah. And it's so key, um, I find, just, just to acknowledge someone, right? To, to, to recognize where they're at and acknowledge them for that. And as humans, one of our, you know, base needs is like to feel acknowledged, to feel seen. And so, you know, no doctor is going to do that. You know, how can you feel seen if all he does is look at a computer screen, type in your symptoms, and then give you a piece of paper? Mm -hmm. It's completely dehumanized. So I love that we're, you know, we're focusing on bringing that human aspect back into it, you know, working with a person as a person, mm -hmm. not a lab test, not a diagnosis, but a human being. Right. And so from here, I would like to, I've got a couple questions and we can go through, um, we'll just break them down. So morning rituals. I'm curious if you've got your sort of, you know, on your ideal day when you're in control of your schedule, what does the first hour to look like? Sure. Great question. So the first thing that happens for me is my eyes open up and my mind starts uh, wandering, right? Because we've got a bunch of things on our to-do list and a bunch of things that we need to get done. What I typically start with, my wife and I usually wake up, um, I wake up a little bit earlier than she does. So I kind of sit there, I I talk to myself, I play with my thoughts a little bit, and I start kind of mentally mapping out my day. And then when my wife gets up, uh, so I'll do all this in bed. When my wife gets up, then we'll do a meditation together. So we usually have a Hay House podcast that we listen to, which is a meditative track. And we try to switch it up periodically. The other thing that we do is we both get up and we write in our gratitude journals. We use a five-minute journal. And then nature calls usually. I usually have a bowel movement pretty much first thing in the morning. But before I run to the bathroom, I'll usually have about 16 ounces of uh, water, which is filtered in my Berkey filter. And so I drink that, go to the bathroom, do my thing. Uh, if, if I don't have to use the bathroom right away, then I'll get on my trampoline. And uh, that gets the lymphatic system going, gets our, our metabolism going. And I usually play my favorite song and I'll, uh, of, of the time of month or whatever it is. I switches every week. But... Um, I'll play, I'll play a song, I'll play a track, and I'll jump on my, tra my mini trampoline for you know three to five minutes, depending on how long the song is. And then uh, what I start doing is I usually, at that point, go to the gym. So three out of, three out of seven days, I'll, I'll be going to the gym first thing in the morning. And, uh, and then I come home, I have breakfast, I spend some time with my son, usually have breakfast with him, and then hop in the shower and, and uh, start my day. So that's kind of what it looks like in a nutshell. Nice. I love that you and your wife meditate together every morning. I imagine if more couples did that, that uh, the world would be a much, much better place. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's I never thought I'd be doing stuff like this when I was younger, but I'm I'm glad I do. You know, and and, and I think uh, just that time where you're awake, you're you're conscious, but you're not running around because there's always stuff to do, and especially when you have a five year old, like we know our son usually wakes up around seven thirty. So if we're not you know, doing our quiet things and our reflective um, rituals in the morning before that time, then we're, we don't have time until the end of the day to do any of that because we're just like you. We're pretty pretty busy, right? Life goes on, and and uh, of course we 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 work together, which is nice. We get to see each other quite a bit, but we're not sitting together meditating at work. We're 
doing our own thing. We're seeing our clients and answering phone calls and emails and the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes me want, you know, when you said, I didn't imagine I would be doing these sorts of things. I love looking back, you know, looking back after you've gone down the rabbit holes and you've made the changes and you look back at where you were and it's like, it's a completely different person, mm-hmm. a completely different reality, completely different set of beliefs. Right. And so when I look at, you know, quote unquote, what's normal or like the average person and the types of things they do or the things they consider normal and how they're actually, you know, quite abnormal and like destructive and just mm-hmm. almost insane in a way. Um, it just makes it that much more interesting. And I, I, I love being the guy who's like, you know, oh, sorry, I love being the guy who's, you know, taking his break and uh, popping his shoes off and getting some sunshine or mm-hmm. climbing a tree or doing yoga in the park. Um, and just getting, seeing people observe you. I feel like we're like planting seeds. It's like, oh, what's, why is he doing that? You know, right. <laughs> just, I, I love being that guy, but um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So, okay. So the day's getting going. That sounds like a pretty amazing way to, to make sure that uh, you're on the right foot or in the right state. Um, We talked about finances and self-care mm-hmm. for kids and education. I'm wondering if there's another piece. Um, if you had to pick one more thing as sort of a pillar for uh, fundamental learning for kids, what that might be. Oh, there's so many. Um, well, certainly die. I mean, see, the thing is we, we should be learning the things that we're going to use every single day, right? There should be mastery in our in the things that impact us daily so our food impacts us three to five you know depending how many times you eat uh, times a day our finances impact us all the time because most people spend uh, the majority of their life earning a living right and and so we have no idea how to manage these two very important pillars when it comes to you know self-mastery if you will so those two definitely need a lot of attention but i also think that you know what kids learn about in school is, you know, I love the teachers out there, so this isn't, you know, uh, anything against them, but is useless, right? Think about, you know, we, if we think about humans as as people who have developed tools to further advance ourselves, right? There's so much stuff that we learn that, in my opinion, is useless because at, up to a certain point, because we have tools that can do these things for us now, right? So think about it this way: like I have an accountant, most people probably do. Do you expect him to do the math in his head or with a pe- piece of pencil and paper, or do you expect him to use a calculator? Probably expect calculator. a calculator, right? And uh, no matter how yeah. good at math he is, he's probably going to use a calculator to double check his work. So why are we spending year after year learning about math and all these things that may never we may never use again? When's the last time I used algebra? When's the last time you used calculus? Right? I haven't. So I'm basically filling this child's head with all this useful information, challenging them in ways that really don't. Uh, don't serve them, and I'm at the expense of omitting information that can prolong their quality of life and and you know make them a much more productive citizen. Right? Nobody's life has ever been saved by calculus, right? By the <laughs> by the average person or algebra. And I don't mean that there aren't medical devices that are created that use mathematics and and all those type of things. But there's people that have already done that, right? So if I encounter a patient. You know, I might rely on somebody else to a small percentage of people who are passionate about that, figuring that stuff out. But 
99% of the population doesn't care and is not using that information on a daily basis. So why are we spending so much time teaching it to our kids and not teaching them the, kid, the things that really matter? And, you know, my son is five and he's fully fluent. He can read, he can do math and uh, just an exceptional little guy, which I think is the, the human potential. He's really nothing special, but he's just living closer to his potential than most other kids are. And, um, and what's, uh, what's my wife and I were joking around, we should, okay, he's done. We should just pull him out of school now. Right. Because <laughs> it's really once you have the basics, I mean, what what else is there really to know to get by in, in today's world? I mean, most of what people know, they learn on the job. Right. It's not like we're using our university educations to their fullest capacity. So there's a there's a four years that, that are down the tube for most people. So I think the amount of time we spend in school could be used a lot more productively. People don't know how to grow their own food. Right. And, and a lot of, I think a lot of this is done intentionally because it creates a dependency, which essentially drives our economy. If people knew how to grow their own food, they knew how to take better care of their health and they knew how to take better care of their finances, our economy would crumble. Right. Yeah. It would basically implode upon itself. So by keeping people broke and broken and unable to nourish themselves and take care of themselves, we create this dependency on an economy that's just built on people not knowing how to take care of themselves. So. I mean, it's a it's a tough question to answer. What one thing I would what what I would add? I just think the whole system itself is is archaic and it no longer serves us. And especially when we have information at our fingertips, right? If you think about how testing is done, let's just think about this for a minute. Um, you know, this came, question came up yesterday. I was hanging out with a bunch of friends, and they asked. Uh, we were talking about cheating, right? And uh, and so we were joking around, and not even joking around, but in all seriousness, I would actually be more inclined to hire someone that quote unquote cheats on a test than somebody who doesn't okay because the person who doesn't writes down the wrong answer right and uh and so they don't they don't actually produce the result that you want but the person who cheats is resourceful enough to find the right answer and write that answer down right so think of an employee right if i'm managing an employee in my office uh do i want them uh to not be resourceful not find the answer not find the solution and come to me with the wrong answer and then i've got to sit there and be like shit man this is wrong go and redo it right or do i want somebody who's going to go out go out find the right answer contact certain people make a few phone calls send a few emails get the right answer and then come back to me and report what the right answer is so now they're not wasting my time right which employee would you hire right obviously the second one if you're a good boss unless you like wasting time telling people yeah. they're wrong. So we're actually creating people who, who, uh, who are not resourceful, who waste their employer's time, who are not finding the solutions. You know, it's funny because, you know, if you think about companies and running organizations, you want people who are going to find the answers, not people who are creating more work for you as an employer, right? So there's a lot of inefficiencies in the way we run business, there's a lot of inefficiencies in the way we run school, and a lot of this could be solved by, uh, by you know, approaching the whole paradigm a little bit differently. Like Henry Ford even said he wasn't a very smart guy. I don't know how much you know about his history, but he wasn't a very smart guy. But what he did know is the right people to answer the tough questions, right? And I think mm. that's how school should be. It should be a collaborative effort because that's how life is, right? We don't expect one person to know everything. And that's the most inefficient way uh, to build a society is that everyone knows everything or parts of everything and really they know nothing. Or you have people who specialize and who are passionate about certain areas and certain topics, and they become the resource in your community or in your tribe or, you know, however you want to look at it or in your organization. So, I, you know, that kind of went way off topic, but I think it, it, it uh, sheds light on an important uh, 
way of kind of reframing the way we look at uh, schooling and education and, and all those things. Yeah. And for me, I'm seeing more and more how, you know, getting back to the apprenticeship model mm -hmm. really feels like the way forward. Yep. Right. So for so, I mean, I'm curious with your son, if you guys plan to just you know put him through the standard public education or do more of like an unschooling approach or a, uh, a nature driven schooling approach. I mean, it, there's all these different alternatives that mm -hmm. are popping up these days that seem much more in alignment um, right. with how a healthy human being develops and learns and becomes interested in things. So I'm curious if you have any plans for, uh, for your own son in that regard. You know, he goes to a Montessori right now, which is very academically based. And, you know, we, we like that because he's reading at a grade three level basically. Right. And he's five. So he's, you know, quite a bit ahead of the curve in that sense. Um, but you know, at home we, we emphasize certain things. Uh, you know, we emphasize diet, nutrition, lifestyle. We role model for him. Uh, and my wife and I were kind of saying this, you know, we should open our own school at some point, you know, where we can we can take people who are, you know, inclined to do so and send their kids uh, in, into an environment that's congruent with their health and their biology and their physiology. Because at this day and age, really, I mean, there, there are schools um, that are more nature-based, right? There are schools, like there's one in Burlington, uh, that's more nature-based. So it's just a little far for us to drop them off every morning with the way traffic mm -hmm. and things are and where we live. But uh, there are schools like that, and we would love to send them there, um, you know, as as an alternative to the school schooling system that we have right now. But he's in a he's in a very academically inclined school, and they they play outside every day. They emphasize that. They emphasize creativity and resourcefulness, and you know, healthy eating and and all those things. So we so he's in a pretty good spot right now. But we make sure as parents we're spending time with him and you know kind of programming him the right way and helping him understand how to optimize his environment and you know one of the things that he wants to be is a superhero or he thinks he is and so that helps us because we attach his behavior and his his decision making to that you know that um, superhero lifestyle right so what would a superhero eat what would a superhero say what would a superhero what was what would his daily routine and exercise be like what time would he go to bed and and so he understands now what it takes to be a superhero and and then he's much more aligned with that. So it's, you know, parenting can be very uh, challenging, but it's one of the most rewarding things as well. And, you know, our, we should be parents. Nobody else should be our kids' parents. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I can see it now. I can see it's like the living proof institute of human potential. <laughs> It's got a giant acreage somewhere and a permaculture food forest and greenhouses and kids of all ages working together. I can see it. There you go. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. One other thing I like to ask is um, what's something that you have decided to let go of recently? Hmm. I let go of a lot of things a long time ago. Um, hmm. So how it's what's recently? I'm trying to think of something recently. I mean, you know, I'll tell you what I've done uh, over the last couple of years. You know, one of my things that I had to detach myself was with material things. And you know, we live in a society where we have certain expect where we have certain expectations, or people have certain expectations of us. And uh, you know, as a as a physician, we're expected to have a huge house and fancy cars and and all these things. And, and, uh, fortunately for me, I did all those things already. I got them out of my system and realized that that's not where my happiness came from. So I went from living in a, you know, kind of a mansion, if you will, to living in a small condo, because I realized that my footprint on the environment was an important consideration for me. 
I also wanted not work to pay for my house, right? I wanted to work because that's what I love to do. And I wanted to be able to take time off and have freedom. And and certainly our business is, is successful, so it allows us to do that. But I didn't want the reason I go to work every day to be so I can pay for my house that I never live in, right? Mm. And so we have a very, we try to keep a, a pretty small carbon footprint. We live in a small or a thousand square foot condo. So that's small for some people, but, um, you know, for us that meets our needs, right? I, my car is 11 years old. It's the first car I ever bought brand new, dumbest decision I ever made. But, uh, you know, I've, I've had it for 11 years, right? And literally it sits in my, my parents-in-law's uh, garage or park, uh, parking uh, spot because I never drive it, right? So it's something that I probably need to get rid of. But, um, you know, we, we try to live a very simple lifestyle. And so we let go of a lot of our material things many, many moons ago. And, and it was, you know, one of the best things we did because now we have financial freedom. We have uh, time freedom. We can take time off work if we need to. And, uh, and really, it allows us to practice what we preach with our patients because we can't tell our patients to do something that we're not doing ourselves. And, you know, it allows me to be a lot more transparent and, uh, and say things with uh, true authenticity. And so I think the material thing was a big one for me. But that happened a few years ago. So it happened about three or four years ago now. Uh, but it's an ever-evolving thing, right? And it's amazing how now the challenge is how little we can spend every month, you know? And not, mm. not, not out of necessity, right? Because uh, that's not the case. But it's more out of just having fun. Like how little can we spend this month and, and do all the things that we want to do and have as much fun as we want to have. And, and, uh, and, and, and so that's... You know, the material stuff is probably the thing that we've let go of. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm in the process of doing that right now with this recent move that I had made. Mm -hmm. I went from a two-bedroom, two-bath condo with my sister to a one-bedroom in an old house set up. So I've got all these boxes of stuff that uh, I, <laughs> most of it could just be thrown in the trash. Yeah. Some of it I want to gift because there are some valuable things that I'm just not using. But, uh, man, is it ever like an anchor? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I admire, I admire the, uh, the simplicity. I forget who it was that said, you know, simplicity is the ultimate in... Uh, sophistication. Sophistication. Yeah. It's yeah. Da Vinci. Yeah, so it's, um, it's exactly you know, counter to all the marketing and the messaging that we, we're, we're fed. But, again, like all these things with this whole wellness revolution that's underway you know there's this whole minimalism movement mm -hmm. and you know mobile living and van living and tiny houses which i'm a big fan of i'm mm -hmm. a big fan of I, I definitely intend to live in a van within the next couple of years well and it depends on what you consider your home right if you consider this planet your home then you you have the biggest house that you'll ever know right <laughs> but if you consider your your physical home home your and you identify that with your existence and your value on this planet then it's never going to be big enough mm. so we have the biggest home that we know of which is this entire planet and you can you know if you plan on spending as much time as possible indoors then yeah have a big house but i mean it, people who are living our lifestyle want to be outdoors they want to be connected with nature and, you know, living in Toronto, the reality is, is to buy something of that magnitude will require more work and doing more of the things that you don't want to do to be able to live in a house that you're never living in because you're working all the time. Right. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the paradox of, of living in a metropolis. Unless you move way outside of the city, you know, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg and that arm and a leg is going to cost you the lifestyle. So it's hard to find that balance for a lot of people. 
Well, it reminds me, I had a couple of your, I love your little quote, the pictures that you put up on Facebook. Oh, thank you. And so I have one here that is, uh, making money should never cost you the things money can't buy. Yep. Which is just so perfect. <laughs> so perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah, you're welcome. One last question. Sure. So making these sort of, you know, optimal health hubs and community centers and increasing access to all this is a big part of why I feel I'm here. I'm curious to know if you could design your ideal community wellness uh, center. What some, and we don't have to go into crazy detail, but maybe what some, um, what what would a few of the the health enhancing technologies be, whether that's infrared saunas or whether that's cold pools. Um, what what would be some of the most key important aspects that you would like to have um, in your ideal wellness hub? You know, it would probably be an outdoor sanctuary, to be perfectly honest, right? We have the greatest source of far infrared light is the sun. So we've already got that and it's free. Uh, so yeah, infrared light is very important. I actually use a biomat, so that could be something you can integrate. Uh, cold water therapy, we've got streams and lakes, right? So these are these are things that already kind of exist. But yeah, certainly um, cold, uh, you know, contrast baths can be of great value, especially uh, for us. But I think that a lot of these things can be replicated at home, right? In the sense that we could be doing a lot of these things. There's nothing stopping us from having uh, a cold bath or a cold shower in our homes. Nothing stopping us from going outside uh, and being in the sun. And in, in terms of putting it all into one place, I would certainly think that, um, you know, places where we can ground would be important. So again, it, it, it really, a lot of this stuff already exists. It's just outdoors, right? Mm. And, and maybe it's just finding the right place where all of these things kind of coexist is, would be, would be ideal because I think that people who want this type of uh, lifestyle want to be outdoors. Right, so it's kind of the paradox because I know I know what you're asking is like, how do we build a building or a community center? What do we introduce? But uh, really, it would be almost like an outdoor sanctuary for humans, right? Where we could create, where we could find the ideal plot of land or the ideal location where all of these things kind of already coexist, and then just explore them and live congruently with nature uh, in them. You know, so we're actually looking at building. Uh, a retreat somewhere where we can have people stay for three or four days uh, in nature and just reconnect. And, and, and so, you know, these are all the things that we're taking into consideration is, you know, where's a water source for us? Where is there somewhere where we can ground and spend time outdoors? You know, how can we climb trees? Like all these things mm. are things you're already doing, right? So you, you've already got our, the, our, the world is our playground. It is our community center uh, where we can already do a lot of these things. So I don't know if I answered your question, but um, you know, in a nutshell, I would say, yeah, far infrared light uh, saunas can be very, very valuable. We use a biomat, as I mentioned. Uh, I think a, a place where you have uh, complete deprivation, like a, like a, a float tank, could be of great mm -hmm. view, right? Because there's, there's obviously a big shortage in, a in sensory deprivation. I think that's some, we're always being stimulated. Uh, I think having aromatherapy rooms, like we, one of the things that we envision in our new practice is having a place where people can have sensory enlightenment. So, you know, auditory enlightenment, visual enlightenment, um, olfactory enlightenment. So like you can use aromatherapies and things like that to, you know, stimulate people's senses and induce a parasympathetic state. Uh, I think having a room where, where people can do, you know, heart math therapy and, and, uh, 
And those type of interventions can be very valuable. And a kitchen, like a teaching kitchen, right? Where mm. Come and learn how to how to cook food and prepare food, and and even having either a greenhouse or some sort of outdoor community garden, where people can learn how to grow food and interact with the soil and and uh, the food that they're preparing. So there's there's uh, a lot of different things that you could incorporate, but the more basic we keep it, and the more I think uh, the more you keep it so that people can create the same or similar environment in their own home where the community center is basically like a school. It's a teaching ground for these things, but people should be, we want to give people tools and resources so they don't have to keep coming back to the community center where they can integrate these things into their home uh, in a practical, affordable way so that their home becomes that sanctuary for them. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for, a solution outside of them where they've got to drive five or 10 minutes and they come up with all, all the excuses under the sun not to go eventually. But if we can help people create these things in their home and create a home-based solution of, a, of some of these ideologies that you have that we've discussed today, then that would be, in my opinion, ideal. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I love, um, I'm just curious, do you sleep on a biomat or do you just use it when, when you feel called? I, like no, I sleep on it. Nice. Some people can't because it's uncomfortable for them. Um, my wife and I both have one, so we yeah we both lay on it. And you can have it so there's no heat. You can have it so there is heat. You can have it just so it's negative ions. So there's a variety of ways to set it up, but uh, we actually have the mat, and then the mat itself is kind of hard because it's full of crystals. And then we have a cover that goes on top of it called a quantum pad. And the quantum pad is is filled with padding. It's it's got like grape seeds and and apricot, uh, crushed apricot seeds as the filling. So that acts as a, as a padding over top of the mat itself. Nice. Yeah, I've used them a few times, but I haven't slept on one. But I hear, and you could probably comment on this, how much of a sleep enhancer it really is mm -hmm. in allowing the body to get into the deep rest and the deep rejuvenation. Yeah. It's amazing. When I first started using it, I would start having like really, really, really bizarre dreams. And, uh, you know, dreams are a sign of the brain healing and repairing and regenerating. So it's actually a good thing to have dreams. Another thing that I use to enhance dream states is uh, frankincense. So actually frankincense is the oil for the crown chakra. So I'll actually put some on top of my head at night before I go to bed and when I wake up after I shower in the morning. Um, but yeah, the biomat's also good at detoxing, right? And detoxing also pr produces vivid and bizarre dreams. So you'll know that a person is healing if they're having, you know, st really strange dream states because their detoxification is enhanced and also their uh, their brain function is enhanced because when we dream, our brain is kind of building neural connections to connect our day and our experiences together. That's very cool. I hadn't thought about that, mm -hmm. that dreams. I mean, I'm aware of the importance of dreams. And another reason why I had to move from where I was at was because I had a very hard time ever remembering my dreams, being on the 17th floor and having how I met, God knows how many Wi-Fi signals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I sleep on a, like an earthing sheet, which helps. Right. But it's definitely not uh, definitely not ideal. So, yeah, the Biomat setup with this quantum pad sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty intense. I mean, it's, it's a great setup, and it's really helped a lot of our patients who are suffering from chronic aches and pains. Um, so it's FDA approved for pain relief, and in Japan and Korea, they use it, use, they use it for cancer therapy because uh, mm -hmm. it boosts the immune function. It increases heat shock proteins. It actually it's very similar because of the way far infrared works at it's at, at increasing core temperature. It actually induces a fever like state or an exercise like state 
and we know that those things are extremely beneficial in cancer therapy because but some people can't exercise right or they can't afford mm -hmm. to catch a, they can't afford to get sick to get a fever uh, which would be the only other way to get it so the only way to increase core temperature then is far infrared light and it boosts the immune system by 40% and my, metabolic function by up to 15%. So it enhances healing and regenerative states for the body. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah, I love, you know, I can geek out on the tech. Sorry, just microphone. I can geek out on the tech um, and that's a ton of fun. But uh, yeah, really grounding it back in nature as the foundation because mm -hmm. it's like you know we're not going to out tech or out supplement or out whatever nature yep. which i feel like is what a lot of our society is trying to do in, in the name of progress mm -hmm. is to somehow circumvent or supersede um nature which i think is sort of a fool's errand at this point right but uh it's interesting to to watch it's interesting to observe to see the direction that so many people are going in and then to see like i think we're if I can look into the future where we're going to have two like very distinct, almost like subspecies of humans, right? You're going to have people like yourself and like your son who are integrated in their natural roots and enhanced to be their best selves and are autonomous and are free and are living a life of abundance and joy and fulfillment. And then you're going to have, you know, enslaved robot like humans that are dependent on the system and cut off from the nourishment of nature and uh, that those two groups will sort of interbreed. One will sort of breed themselves into relying on artificial means, which many people do, mm -hmm. and the other will, you know, become more f fertile and have almost like a Garden of Eden-like <laughs> existence. So that's at least that's the world I want to live in. You know, recreating heaven, as it were, on Earth, and uh, integrating the best of ancient wisdom with the best of modern tech. Mm -hmm. To uh, to as you would say, become proof. Right, you got so, it. <laughs> yeah. So I think we'll wrap there. I want to just be respectful of your time. I want to let you get on with your day. And um, I mean, I just want to wrap up by saying, thank you for the work that you're doing, um, for the man that you are, for the example that you're broadcasting out to the world, the changes you're making, and um, yeah, for for really living it. Thank you. And uh, and sharing your truth. So thank you. I appreciate that. It's very honorable of you. My pleasure. And I appreciate pleasure. everything that you're doing. You know, it's great to see um, our up and coming generation really engaging and, and understanding and, and valuing and prizing um, our health and nature. And, and, you know, I wish I started a long time ago. I wish I knew this at a much younger age. And so it's great to see, it's going to be amazing to see when you're my age, you know, how this transpires and how this impacts your life and the difference you could make. Because if I had a 10 year head start on this, you know, my life would be even more amazing than it is right now. So kudos to you and congratulations to you and, and keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you, man. And so if people want to find your stuff, I know we have the 30 and 30 as the free intro program. Is there any other links or social media you want me to direct people to? So 30and30.org is a good place for people to start if they're looking to get, A, get an understanding, uh, a better understanding of what we do and, and how we operate and what our expectations are um, of our prospective clients. But even if they're just looking to kind of hack themselves, if you will, another website they can go to is becomeproof.com. That's our website and we have lots of information there. I think the place where I probably share the most information is on my personal Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash Dr. Sachin Patel. 
And they can also join me on my practice page, which is uh, facebook.com slash become proof. Excellent. So I'll have all of this linked up in the show notes. Okay. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming by. You have yourself a beautiful day. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Fresh from the evening, dreaming about all the homies I believe in. I have so much time to think. I got sisters who are mothers and brothers who are fathers to me. Keep the